please. Please, I can't breathe. Please, man. Please, somebody. That is the voice of George Floyd pleading to the officer who forcibly subdued him to let him breathe, captured on film by a bystander who, along with others, implored that officer to let him up. Watching this event is a gut punch and a clear violation of Floyd's rights as a citizen and as a human. It's made only worse by the fact that George Floyd was pronounced dead only a few hours later. Two weeks back, I spoke about Ahmaud Arbery's killing and how it often takes such extreme situations to make us reckon with how racism and privilege work in the United States. And here we are again, just a couple weeks later. However, sadly, such a situation with the police force actually doesn't seem that extreme any longer. We are very familiar now with these images and these types of videos. It seems like only yesterday that another man, Eric Garner, said those exact words. I can't breathe. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Ryan Park Chronicles, where today I'm going to discuss institutional racism and its impact on police and justice reform. I will begin with a caveat. As heart-wrenching as this video is, I want to try to stay grounded in reason because I do think it will provide the best way forward. Which admittedly is hard. Seeing this video makes me want to take to the streets like so many men and women have done in the past 24 hours. But I'm not sure that would help much, at least from my vantage point here. So I'll try to do my best to provide an assessment of the current state of police brutality and how we can move to stop such acts from happening in the future. Now, before I dive into this, I want to acknowledge the good work that most police officers do and that many interactions between police and civilians are peaceful, positive, and justifiable. I also want to acknowledge that the job itself is intense and stressful and incredibly difficult, particularly in underserved communities, and that I can recognize that this could be a driving force in creating a reactive environment instead of a proactive one. Nevertheless, the, the fact remains that police violence plagues nearly the entirety of the black and brown community in the U.S., and most significantly, black men. Some studies place the odds of a black male dying at the hands of a police officer in his lifetime at about one out of a thousand, which is two and a half times that of a white male. Such a disparity highlights how institutional racism manifests in action. As a government-supported institution, the police force is inscribed with the power to act. And when that power reinforces historical discrepancies along racial lines, we must acknowledge the fact that the act is not neutral or devoid of those historical considerations. There is no doubt that black men are always already identified as a threat. This is a remnant of slavery and a conscious effort by the white world after the Civil War to dehumanize and position black men as uncontrollable or predatory. And the police are not immune to these ideologies. Most likely, most of them grew up with the same images and understandings that we all did. And these are the same understandings that lead to this. Then tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. Please tell them whatever you like. There is an African-American man. I am in He is recording me and threatening myself and my dog. In the previous episode about privilege, 
I spoke about how difficult it is to identify it due to its invisibility. Here, however, we see it in its full malicious view. The woman knows, knows and understands exactly how the world views black men, and she uses that to her advantage. Later, in subsequent interviews, she maintained that she's not racist, and probably in most of her day-to-day -day interactions, with the exception of this one, she probably appears to not be racist, just like we all do, and probably just like most police officers do. And it is because of that appearance that we return privilege and racism right back to where it's most palatable for us, you know, shoved under this rug, out of sight, out of mind. But as I indicated in that episode, this is exactly where we need to begin, by acknowledging it, by being honest about it, and by taking actions to rectify it. For a police force, this means starting with training to become more culturally and racially aware and sensitive to the power dynamics, as well as each officer's and each person's implicit biases. Many police uh, forces around the country have taken proactive steps to do just this with the help and guidance of different organizations such as Project Zero. And this includes training to work with all members of the community, um, such as young people, LGBTQ plus people, non-English speakers, immigrants, and so forth. Our biases, racist tendencies, and other forms of discrimination may not be eradicated completely as they are sometimes deeply ingrained in us and structurally supported throughout our society, but they can be dealt with through training and intervention. And recognizing this, I think, is a key component to combating it. Secondly, we really need to demilitarize our police force. Nixon's war on crime and drugs started a trend that encouraged and financially supported police departments across the country to become more and more heavily armed, leading to violent and aggressive tactics against civilians that is typically disproportionate to the level of threat that they pose. Studies show that a militarized police force does not enhance public safety or even reduce crime. Instead, a militarized police force is seen as less part of a community and more likely to use force unnecessarily. As with training, many municipalities have taken steps to reduce or eliminate the use or purchasing of military-grade equipment. They've also dismantled or reduced their SWAT teams and they have put into place restrictions on when such equipment, if they have it, can be used. All of these actions return police departments to a position of service and protection that was emblematic uh, to their organizations before the 1960s. Again, if we want to see why this is important, we can look no further than how the police response has differed between the armed protest and the open up state movement, uh, which were predominantly white, compared with the current protesting surrounding George Floyd's arrest and death. Finally, we must hold police officers who overstep their duty to serve and protect accountable. But this takes clear policies and procedures around the use of force, uh, including the use of firearms and other tactics to subdue a person under arrest. In 2017, the United Nations published an extensive guide on how and when to use force that takes into consideration both civil and human rights. We need to use this kind of information and those kind of models that are at our disposal to craft policies that are realistic and easily identifiable. For example, the New York Police Department has banned the use of any type of chokehold or other action that hinders a person's 
uh, ability to breathe, period. Official statements currently from the Minneapolis Police Department have not clarified if the officer was following protocol or was trained to deliver such an action in George Floyd's arrest. And I fear this ambiguity may lead to officers slipping through a legal loophole. The officers are no doubt responsible for their action, and as was shown on film, but so is the department that employed them. Police and criminal justice reform have been topics for years now, and we are seeing progress as shown by some of the policies developed by different departments across the U.S. But unfortunately and obviously, it is not enough. And the time has come for us to take a deep, systematic look at our inherent racism and biases in order to truly improve this area of our country. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening to what I consider to be a very important topic heading into this election year. Remember that you can find more of my platform as well as the issues that I try to take on at beachforwyoming.org. Looking forward to the summer campaign. Let's see how this all works out. And remember to mark your calendars. August 18th is the Democratic primary. Vote Carl Beach, U.S. House of Representatives. Thank you. Take care, all. Thank you.